Hey, welcome to another uh, mini episode of the Superpowered Fancast. Um, this is Darren. Now, the last mini episode that I did was about uh, Star Trek celebrating its 50th anniversary. So I did the first two series in uh, Star Trek being the original series and Star Trek The Next Generation. I went over two episodes that I love out of uh, from each series. So now we're going to go ahead and continue on with pardon the coughing <laughs> with uh, just getting over a cold uh, with Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Star Trek Voyager. So um, Star Trek Deep Space Nine is admittedly my favorite Star Trek series. And a lot of it had to do with the inclusion of an African-American male lead. Now, the other things that appealed to me were the fact that not only did it show the darker sides of the Federation, I mean, it showed the effects of being in Star that being in Starfleet had on families through Captain Benjamin Sisko raising his son as a single father. Now, with that in mind, my first favorite episode of Deep Space Nine is called The Visitor. Now, The Visitor is the second episode of the fourth season. It was written by Michael Taylor and uh, directed by uh, David Livingston. So, in the 25th century... um, An old man is sitting in his home on a rainy night when the door rings. A young woman comes in and we find out that the old man is Jake Sisko, Captain Benjamin Sisko's son. Now, the older Jake is a successful writer who stopped writing after publishing two highly successful novels. When the young lady named Melanie presses Jake on why, he decides to tell her the story. See, years earlier, when Jake was 18, he and his father were on the Defiant to observe the inversion of the Bajoran wormhole, an occurrence that only happens once every 50 years. See, the warp drive is affected by the phenomenon, and Sisko and Jake are in engineering at the time. They're the only ones that can fix it. After fixing the issue, a bolt of energy from the warp core hits Sisko and Jake, causing Benjamin to vanish into subspace. Believing him to be dead... The crew mourns his loss, but he seems to appear intermittently to Jake. Now, a year after the incident, he appears long enough to be seen by others. Dax and Bashir determine that Sisko is out of phase and that there isn't anything that they can do to keep him in their time. Before he disappears, he makes Jake promise that he'll live his life. Now, Jake is forced to leave Deep Space Nine when the Klingons take over the sector. He writes, he gets married, and doesn't really think about his father as much as he did before. Now, his father appears again in Jake's home on Earth, and Jake introduces him to his wife. See, Jake starts to feel guilty for not trying harder to bring him back, but Sisko is proud of his son and wants Jake to start a family. When Sisko disappears again... Jake is traumatized. He abandons his writing career and dedicates his life to retrieving his father, sacrificing his marriage in the process. Fifty years later, during the next inversion, Jake and the crew of the Defiant attempt to recreate the accident that lost Sisko. The procedure fails, briefly sending the older Jake into the void that his father is in. Jake tells him everything that he's done to try and get him back, 
But Sisko is disappointed that his son has seemingly stopped living his own life. And he tells Jake to let him go and promise to go back to writing, which he agrees. See, Jake tells Melanie this story because he knows that his father is going to appear again that night. He determines that he has been pulling his father through time as a tether, and if he dies in the presence of his father, that he'll snap back to the moment of the initial accident on the Defiant. He gives Melanie his final book and sends her on on her way. Sisko appears and reads Jake's book as his son sleeps. When he awakes, he tells his father that he took a lethal hypospray in order to kill himself. It was me. It was me all along. I've been dragging you through time like an anchor, and now it's time to cut you loose. Sisko is distraught, and he tries to help Jake, but Jake dies, and Sisko is snapped back to the moment of the accident. This time he dodges the discharge and stays with his son, holding him as he realizes the lengths his son would go to save him. As a father, this episode hits close to home on several levels, with Sisko and Jake dealing with a son's unconditional love for his father and a father's desire for his child to live his or her best life. So that's one of the reasons why this one is kind of is one of my favorites. You could still have so many years left. No, we have to be together when I die. Jake, you didn't have to do this. Not for me. For you and for the boy that I was. He needs you more than you know. Now, the next episode that I really love of Deep Space Nine is another one that asks some interesting existential questions about morality, duty, and the greater good. See, I've, I've written a full review about this episode on our website, superpowerfancast.com, but I love it so much that it absolutely belongs on this list. In the Pale Moonlight is the 19th episode of the sixth season, and originally aired in April of 1998. It was uh, written by Michael Taylor from a story by Peter Allen Fields and directed by Victor Lobel. So the episode begins with Captain Sisko sitting in his quarters recording his to his personal log. Now the episode is told in a flashback from Sisko's point of view with references back to him for reactions to the events that we just saw in the episode. See, Sisko is upset as he sits with members of his senior staff uh, discussing the updated casualty list that he just posted. At this point, there's no one in Starfleet, and especially on Deep Space Nine, who doesn't know someone who has either been killed in action or is missing and and presumed dead. See, the only way Sisko can see a way forward is to try and convince the Romulans that the Dominion's desire for order will one day push them to conquer the Romulan Empire. And with all the other opposition defeated, the Romulans will be surrounded. So he needs the Romulans to declare war against the Dominion. Now the final push that sets Sisko on this path is the Dominion invasion of Beta Zed in Federation territory, which threatens the Vulcans, the Andorians, and the Talorians. Now, Sisko 
goes to the one person on the station who can get information from the Kardashian home planet, a tailor and former spy named Elam Garrick. Now, Garrick is willing to help, even though it will require calling in all of his favors with people on Cardassia Prime. Now, when Sisko returns to Garrick for a progress report, he finds that every person that Garrick talked to on his home planet was murdered by the Jem'Hadar within one day of speaking with him. This actually spurs Garrick into action, specifically into convincing the Romulan senator who wrote the non-aggression treaty with the Dominion, Vrenak, that the Dominion is planning to invade Romulus. See, all he needs is for Captain Sisko to invite Senator Vrenak to a secret meeting on Deep Space Nine, while he is on his way to another meeting with the Dominion on Sukora. See, Garrick tells Sisko that he can obtain a recording of a meeting that lays out the invasion plans. When Sisko is skeptical, Garrick tells him that he needs to contact the Klingons to release a criminal awaiting a death sentence who's going to forge the message on a Cardassian data rod that can only be recorded onto once and cannot be altered in order to prove its authentic authenticity. So after the forger is brought to the station, he ac- actually assaults uh, Quark and Cisco is forced to bribe Quark in order to keep the uh, forger from being arrested. Now, Cisco contemplates stopping the entire operation until he gets back to his quarters and finds a new set of casualty reports. The next day, Garrick tells him that in order to get the data rod that they need, the person in possession of the rod needs 200 liters of a regulated substance called biomimetic gel, which can be used for genetic experimentation or for chemical weapons. Cisco calls off the deal and then changes his mind, offering 85 liters instead. Dr. Mashir, the chief medical officer, objects and requests the order in writing while telling Cisco that his objection will be noted in his log. After securing the rod, the forger completes the simulated recording of the leaders of the Cardassian government and the Dominion planning the invasion of the Romulan Empire. Now, Vrenak alters course to meet with Sisko secretly on the station, where Sisko plans to show him the data rod in order to convince him to go back to his government and pressure them into declaring war against the Dominion. Sisko starts to feel better about his actions after receiving the blessing of Starfleet Command as he prepares for the arrival of the Senator. Garrick tells Sisko that while he is speaking with the Senator, uh, Garrick is going to sneak onto the Senator's ship and see if he can find any information about the Dominion on board. After viewing the recording and asking to examine it himself, Sisko is put into the position of waiting to see if the forgery was a success. When Sisko returns to the Senator, he is confronted with the forgery, It's a fake! and is assured by the Senator that the entire quadrant will know about his actions. Sisko fears that this will push the Duromulans to openly support the Dominion and begin attacking the Federation itself. While he awaits the consequences of his actions, two days later he receives news that Vrenak's ship was destroyed after his meeting on Sukara, and everyone on board was killed. Sisko violently confronts Garrick, who explains to Sisko that while he hoped the recording would work, he did sabotage Senator Vrenak's ship, and murdered the forger because the investigation of the explosion 
will show that the ship was sabotaged and damaged, but the still retrievable data rod with the recording of the planned Dominion invasion was still on board. Garrick informs him that any imperfections in the recording will be seen as a result of the damage from the explosion, and that the Dominion will only look more guilty when they try and deny it. Garrick tells Sisko that the Romulans will enter the war, and that all it cost him was one senator, one criminal, and the self-respect of one Starfleet officer. Sisko concludes his log by relaying that the Romulans have entered the war, and have struck 15 Dominion targets along the border. There's a celebration planned on the station to welcome their new allies. He talks about banners being made to welcome to the war, but he isn't happy. He doesn't particularly feel better about this turn in the war. He then turns straight to camera and says, I lied. I cheated. I bribed men to cover the crimes of other men. I am an accessory to murder. But the most damning thing of all, I think I can live with it. And if I had to do it all over again, I would. He continues to tell himself that he can live with it. With, with it and the episode ends with him erasing the entire log when it was announced that another Star Trek series was going into production in 1994 I was excited now when I learned uh, that this new show would feature a female captain I was surprised and intrigued now the more I learned about the series the more interested I became in watching what was going to be a new take on the Star Trek formula so if you're unfamiliar with the series, here's a short synopsis. Now, after the Federation comes to a fragile peace with the Cardassian Empire, many of the Federation colonies on the Cardassian border find themselves being relocated or being subject to Cardassian rule. Now, a resistance begins to form among the Federation colonists, and they strike out in what some label terrorist attacks under the name the Maquis. Now, the Federation condemns these acts, and they work to bring down the Resistance peacefully. Captain Catherine Janeway of the Intrepid-class Starship Voyager is on a mission to an area of space that the Maquis like to hide in, called the Badlands, to not only capture one of their leaders, a man named Chakotay, but to also retrieve her security chief, Tuvok, who's been working undercover to investigate the Maquis. Now, while in pursuit of Chakotay's ship, Voyager is thrown 70,000 light years across the galaxy by an energy wave to the Delta Quadrant. After retrieving the Maquis members, Voyager is cut off from the Federation and at maximum warp will take 75 years to return home through Borg-infested space. Now, many of the episodes get to deal with new species and civilizations that can create interesting uh, dramatic conflicts with a lone ship cut off from the rest of the Federation. It also allowed for smaller episodes that dealt more with the human condition. And one of those episodes that I really enjoy deals with that from the point of view of the holographic doctor. Latent Image is the 11th episode of the fifth season. It was written by Joe Minoski and directed by Mike Vijar. 
The episode deals with one of the existential issues involved in allowing the ship's holographic doctor to explore his individuality. Now, the episode is very light on action, but it does exemplify the best of Star Trek in its personal exploration and focus on character. So the holographic doctor is taking a series of scans of the crew for a new database that he's establishing. Now, most of the crew that poses for him seem annoyed at the prospect and even more annoyed at the doctor for making them do it. Now, as he contemplates his scans of, as he completes his scans of Harry Kim, he notices an anomaly in the instant scan. He determines that there's a, that there's scar tissue at the base of Harry's skull consistent with neurosurgery. After examining the incision, he notes that the only person that could have performed the procedure was himself. Now, Harry tells the doctor that he doesn't remember having surgery, and the doctor states that he doesn't remember performing one. He seeks out Captain Janeway, who seems uncharacteristically distant, to perform her physical and give her a general report on the health of the crew. Now, he tells the captain about the medical mystery he's discovered and that it happened 18 months previously. There also seems to be no record in the computer of the surgery or in the doctor's medical log. He asks the captain for the ability to review his memory files, but he's brushed off. He then seeks out Seven of Nine to ask her for a favor. Now, when she dismisses him, he laments the issues he's having, and Seven decides to help him in an hour to run a self-diagnostic. When she arrives an hour later for their appointment, he has no recollection of talking to her at all. His short-term memory has been deleted, and so has the scan of Harry Kim. The doctor remembers taking a lot of pictures during the time of the supposed surgery, and he takes his emitter to the holodeck with Seven to try and see the images he shot to see if there are any that clues to his missing memories. The computer informs him that all of the photos he took during that period have been deleted. Seven of Nine, who was not on Voyager at the time of the incident, is curious about the mystery the doctor finds himself in, and she is able to restore some of the images. Now, the pictures show an unknown ensign at a birthday party in the mess hall, as well as photos of them on a shuttle mission being attacked by an unknown alien. After Seven starts restoring some of the doctor's memories, he sees flashes of a celebration with the mysterious ensign. His memories are coming in flashes that show the ensign, her birthday party, the attack on the shuttle, and her being injured in sickbay. He goes to the captain and security chief Tuvok to explain the evidence that he's uncovered with Seven. He finds out that the unknown ensign is named Jital. See, the doctor postulates that she might have been an alien intruder disguised as a member of the crew and that they're all in danger. Janeway orders a deck-by-deck -deck search of the ship and tells Seven to go back to the astrometrics lab to scan for any cloaked ships in the area. When the doctor suggests that he go through the medical records for the rest of the crew, Janeway tells him to deactivate himself and that they will encrypt the computer to prevent any further tampering with the doctor's program. The doctor objects, but Janeway insists. The doctor continues to be suspicious and tells the computer to duplicate all his files for the last 48 hours and that if anyone attempts to alter his program, reactivate him and restore the duplicate files. He also sets up his camera to start taking pictures every five seconds if someone enters sickbay. After he deactivates himself, someone does in fact enter the room and starts erasing the doctor's memory files. 
He's reactivated, the file's restored, and he turns on the camera to see who tampered with his system. Turns out to be Captain Janeway herself. The doctor goes to the bridge to confront the captain and is ordered to the captain's ready room after making a scene in front of the bridge crew. The captain explains that he is malfunctioning. He was damaged during the incident with the alien intruder and the damage caused a conflict in his program that she won't specify. When pressed, Janeway explains to him that for the good of the ship and the crew, his memories of the incident were erased. He asks her if he would operate on her without her consent, how would she feel? Janeway explains that he needs to be repaired, and the only way that they can that they can is to perform the procedure that erased his memories again, and she orders him to return the sick bay. Seven of Nine and Lieutenant Torres will perform the procedure, and Ensign Paris is put in charge of sick bay. Seven confronts the captain about her decision. See, she disagrees that the only course of action is to erase the the doctor's memory. See, Janeway compares the doctor to the ship's replicator and that his individuality is irrelevant. Seven, heavy-handedly in my opinion, shames the captain into questioning her decision. Janeway gives the doctor the option to know why his memories were erased. He agrees and Torres reinitializes his memories. He's in the mess hall with the rest of the crew throwing Ensign Jital a birthday party. His memory then shifts to he, Jital, and Harry Kim on a shuttle during a survey mission. The shuttle is attacked by another ship, and a member of its crew beams aboard and attacks everyone with an energy weapon. The shot injures Jital and Kim, but passes through the Doctor. The Doctor beams the alien off the ship and hails Voyager to come and rescue them. The Doctor starts to tend to the wounded crew as Voyager drives off the attackers. Now, the weapon used is shutting down all synaptic function in their brains and is damaging their nervous systems. So the doctor is unsure how to treat them as their systems begin to shut down internally. The doctor decides to isolate the spinal cord from the brainstem, but he doesn't have time to perform the procedure on both patients, and he's the only one skilled enough to perform it at all, forcing him to choose between Harry Kim and Ensign Jital. If he doesn't choose one, both will die. The doctor chooses to save Harry Kim. As the procedure is completed, Jital dies. The doctor doesn't understand why the death of one patient would affect him, as he's programmed to accept the loss of a patient without emotion, but Janeway unlocks more memories. The doctor is talking to Neelix in the mess hall, and he starts to contemplate decision-making. He continues to question every decision he's made and the nature of choice itself, he believes that he decided to kill her instead of allowing her to die. He tells Janeway that she was right to erase his memories. You were right. I didn't deserve to keep those memories. Not after what I did. You were performing your duty. Two patients. Which do I kill? Doctor. Doctor. Hardly. A doctor retains his objectivity. I didn't do that, did I? Two patients. Equal chances of survival. And I chose the one I was closer to. I chose my friend. That's not in my programming. That's not what I was designed to do. Go ahead, reprogram me. I'll lend you a hand. Let's start with this very day, this hour, this second. He says he can't be counted on to make decisions when he chose to save his friend instead of Jatal. So he fights with himself due to a feedback loop in his ethical and cognitive subroutines. The captain deactivates him and seeks advice from Seven of Nine about the nature of individuality. From someone who, until recently, 
had not experienced it. She decides to allow the doctor to retain his memories and to help him find a way to incorporate them. The two sit in the holodeck as the doctor goes over the information from every angle, trying to find a solution. Eventually, he tells the captain to leave as she's become exhausted from the vigil. He continues to work through his own memories as the episode ends. Now, what I enjoy about this episode is that it is self-contained in its focus. See, it focuses on the doctor and his angst as he tries to understand the nature of choice and Janeway's struggle with how she treats the doctor versus what he is. Now, the next episode of Voyager that I want to talk about requires a little backstory involving the core rule that is at the heart of every Federation encounter, the Prime Directive. Now, I've written about the Prime Directive before, more specifically, Captain Kirk's continued flagrant flagrant violations of it. But the Directive does serve a specific function. The Prime Directive states that no Federation ship or personnel may interfere in the natural, political, or evolutionary history of any society or culture. The Prime Directive is not just a set of rules. It is a philosophy, and a very correct one. History has proved again and again that whenever mankind interferes with a less developed civilization, no matter how well-intentioned that interference may be, the results are invariably disastrous. This next episode of Voyager is about what happens when that directive unintentionally is violated. The episode is called Blink of an Eye. It is the 12th episode of the sixth season and originally aired uh, January 19th in the year 2000. It was written by Scott Miller and Joe Manoski and directed by Gabrielle Beaumont. See, Voyager comes upon a planet that resembles a quasar due to the fact that it has a high rate of rotation. Now, our planet rotates once every 24 hours. This one rotates about 58 times per minute. See, Janeway orders the ship into high orbit to explore, but the ship's warp drive and impulse engines shut down. The ship is caught in a field that is pulling it towards the planet. Now, on the planet's surface, a primitive village is seen with one of the inhabitants leaving fruit for their gods to take. The planet begins to shake, and the inhabitant sees a bright light in the sky, which turns out to be Voyager. Now, the people on the planet presume that the ship is a new god, and that they must determine what it wants, and a new mythology is born. Meanwhile, Voyager is now in orbit of the planet. The ship is caught in a tachyon field emanating from the planet's core. The ship is causing an imbalance in the planet's poles, creating an artificial third pole. After scanning the planet, Seven of Nine determines that each second on the ship corresponds to a full day on the planet's surface. Chakotay goes to engineering and has Torres alter the scanners in order to document life on the planet. On the surface, the world has become a pre-Renaissance era society, complete with thatch-roofed cottages and stone castles, which resembles 12th century England or Italy. So the local protector has decided to try and communicate with Voyager, calling it uh, the Lightbringer and Groundshaker, which is what it's now known as by the inhabitants. So they're writing primitive letters and sending them up on balloons. See, the Protector also challenges many of the firmly held beliefs of his people and defies the notion that Voyager is a god. 
Now, Torres and Chakotay uh, continue to probe the surface, noting that the inhabitants have developed internal combustion engines and have crafted roads in large cities. The whole time, the quake's voyager is causing continue to get worse. The planet has reached a level of industrial development that means detection of the ship is almost certain. On the surface, two of the planet's inhabitants are looking at Voyager through an observatory telescope in the outskirts of an early 20th century style city. One of the men is trying to contact the ship using a primitive radio. This Voyager, now called the Skyship, is the subject of non-stop interpretation. Many people see it as a ship filled with friends, even going so far as to create toys and games based on it. Others see it as a palace where an evil protector lives and that bad children are sent there to be punished. A quake starts to shake the observatory and the two scientists grab for wall handles out of instinct. The buildings have been reinforced and designed with the constant tremors in mind. The scientists try sending the ship a message, which Seven picks up, slows down and plays with the crew. Unfortunately, the Prime Directive still applies, and the primitive radio technology used to send the message means that Voyager cannot initiate contact with the planet. Unfortunately, as they are debating whether or not to contact the planet, Torres and the Doctor point out that the scientists who sent the original message have been dead for over a century at that point. Chakotay points out that their presence has been a cornerstone of this planet's history since ancient times. The Prime Directive doesn't apply because they have been the catalyst for every societal change on the surface. They are part of the society, in fact. Chakotay suggests that they make first contact with the planet, and Janeway points out that they don't know if anyone could survive the trip to the surface. The Doctor states that he can, since he's a hologram. His holomatrix would not be affected by the changes in time. He's told that he is only there to observe and cannot make contact. He will be allowed to alter his appearance in a matter of seconds in order to blend in. Now Janeway is going to send him down there for three seconds, or a little over two days on the surface. He's beamed down, and after three seconds they attempt to bring him back, which causes an issue due to the temporal flux of the planet. The crew attempts to find them, and they beam him back to the ship. See, he hugs the captain, telling him that he's been on the surface for over three years. He tells the crew that, barring the occasional war... The society on the planet has been trying to contact Voyager. Their presence has influenced art, commerce, religion, invention, and science. He's committed to memory all of the knowledge on the planet regarding the ship and is on his way to Astrometrics to upload the information when he informs Janeway that there is a space race developing between the different city-states and the doctor doesn't know if they're talking about a shuttle with an astronaut or a missile with a warhead. The ship attempts to leave orbit and their attempt causes damage to the planet's surface. A small craft, reminiscent of one of the Apollo-era rockets, is seen leaving the surface. It's carrying two astronauts who have lost contact with the surface as they close in on Voyager. They move into position and find a way to dock with Voyager. The two astronauts come aboard the ship and observe that the crew are not moving. They're all frozen in position. They continue to explore the ship as they begin to feel strange. They make their way to the bridge and collapse as time comes back into sequence. The pilot is is revived, but the shuttle commander dies. Janeway explains the ship's presence to the pilot, who understands, 
but doesn't know how he can help as everyone he knows is dead at that point. He agrees to help them find a way to leave as the ship begins to detect early warp tests on the surface. The inhabitants start firing antimatter torpedoes at the ship, draining the shields. Janeway sends the pilot back to the surface in his ship. He attempts to contact launch control, but they don't believe him. He pleads for someone to listen. On Voyager, the blasts are increasing in intensity to the point where the shields are now failing. The pilot has been gone for ten minutes, or about a year and a half. Tuvok picks up another launch. Two ships appear on either side of Voyager and lock onto it with a tractor beam. They move Voyager out of orbit and back into space. The pilot appears on the bridge and explains that they haven't made it to the point where they can compensate for the changes in time for more than a few minutes, just long enough for him to say goodbye. He vanishes from the ship. On the surface, the pilot is a very old man, watching the night sky as Voyager finally disappears from view. So one of the reasons I like that episode is you get to see an entire civilization forming. And it is a test of the prime directive, especially in the sense that Voyager is the catalyst and cause for all of these changes for basically for the the society itself. And you speculate on what that society would have been like had Voyager never arrived. But that's it for uh, deep space nine and Voyager. Now, the last one I'm going to do is going to be about uh, Star Trek Enterprise. Now, I'll, unfortunately, I'm a little hard-pressed to find two episodes of Enterprise that I like, which I will go over why on the next episode. So, um, again, you can uh, tell me what you think. You can rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, with a super-powered fan cast. You can uh, let me know what you think by emailing us at superpoweredfancast at gmail.com. Uh, please read our articles and comic reviews on our website, superpoweredfancast.com, and on the Geeks Worldwide website at thegww.com. Uh, you can see our videos on uh, our YouTube channel. We, uh, Search for Superpowered Fancast. We have a we just now uploaded the uh, new trailer for Spider-Man: Homecoming, so that's going to be awesome. We have a reaction video coming soon where all of us react to the uh, to the trailer itself. And um, for everything else, you can follow us on Twitter at Superpowered Fan, and just uh, let us know what you like, what you don't like, what you'd like to hear more of. And until next time, um, this is Darren for the Superpower Fancast saying, live long and prosper. <laughs>